statisticians tell us that by January the 15th, which is today, 25%, one quarter of all New Year's resolutions have already been broken. 25%. In the next two weeks, by the end of January, statisticians tell us that over 75% of all New Year's resolutions will have been broken. But the good news is, is if you can wait and hold on for eight weeks, then it becomes a part of your life. Matter of fact, if you do something 48 times, it becomes a part of who you are. It becomes a part of your habits. And so for those of us this morning that strive to make New Year's resolutions, that, that gives us something to shoot for, something to hope for. I wonder how many of you this morning would be willing to admit that you made a New Year's resolution. Not necessarily something you wrote down or put on social media or you announced anybody, but maybe in your heart. You just said, I want to eat healthier or I want to grow more spiritually or I want to uh, be more loving or I want to exercise more. Or you made some kind of resolution at the start of the new year. How many of you would be willing to say that you did that? There you go. Some of you. Let's be honest. Now, how many of you would be willing to say that you've already broken some of your New, res- new Year's resolutions? I had Krispy Kreme on January the 2nd. It was over for me. So it doesn't help that my son works at Krispy Kreme. That probably shouldn't have been one of my New Year's resolutions. How many of you this year, when you were making your New Year's resolutions, said, this year, in 2017, my goal is to achieve perfection? Anybody? Achieve perfection? And I know you say, that's easy for you to say, Rusty, because you're almost there. But for most of us, I mean, I know it sounds impossible, it sounds crazy, but anybody, let's say, I, I want to be perfect this year. Well, apparently you haven't read ahead to the passage in our study of Matthew. Because that's exactly what Jesus asked of you. Matter of fact, if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 5. But while you're turning over there, I want you to get your order of worship out. Almost everybody got an order. I want you to look at this. And we're going to read this together. The last verse in Matthew chapter 5. And it's written there in black and white. It's in red letters in your uh, New Testaments as you're turning over there. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you or a pew underneath you. But we're going to read verse 48 together. I'll start us. And it's not real confusing and it's not real hard. Verse 48, he says this. Read with me. Be perfect. Maybe you didn't hear me. I know you're not in school yet, some of you. Let's read again. Be perfect. Therefore, and the therefore can go before it, sometimes in the Greek language. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, would Jesus ask us to do something? Would Jesus even command us to do something? Would he suggest us to do something if it was impossible for us to do? Would he suggest that you and I should strive to perfection if it was something that was unattainable? I would hope not. You see, the problem for many of us when we think about perfection is is we compare it to sinlessness. We, We compare being perfect to not sinning, and it's not the same thing. You see, your goal every year, every day is to sin less. We want to sin less in our life and involve less sin in our life. But as long as we live in these fleshly bodies, we'll always struggle with sin. We will always give in to sin. So he's not saying, I want you to live sinless in 2017. So what is he saying with this be perfect? Well, we're going to get to it. But before we get to it, we've got to lay the foundation 
as he lays the foundation to understand perfection. Because you see, what I think as he calls us to this perfection is he's calling us to something that could unlock an incredible life change for you in 2017. Something that could change your family. Something that could change your personality. Something that could change your future. If you're willing to listen to what he has to say. Now I know we've been gone. Uh, I haven't been studying this in Matthew chapter 5 now for almost four weeks. And it's easy for us to lose our sight. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it to Matthew 5. And I want to just quickly go over where we've come from to get to this last uh, part of chapter 5. And it's not really just review. I'm not trying to review for you. I'm also trying to set the table for what Jesus says perfection is. Because as you read this, I'm hoping you will understand what Jesus is calling us to. Now, if you've been with us all these last 19 weeks as we've looked over the Sermon on the Mount, you know that we started in verses 1 through 12 looking at the Beatitudes, the blessed are, the chapter where Jesus lays out what his character traits are, but not just his character traits, the character traits of those who claim to be Christians. See, the Beatitudes are not a list of things that you try to do in your life. Jesus is saying this is who you are when you submit yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not something for you to put on the wall and say, okay, I'm going to be this and this and this and this. What he's saying is that you are already that. And if you aren't, it's because you are getting the way of the Holy Spirit building those character traits inside of you. So he says these blessed are, when we become blessed, is when we get out of the way and invite the Holy Spirit to have every area of our life. And then he goes on to say, when that happens, you can't help. When you get out of the way and the Holy Spirit is in charge of every area, All of a sudden, not only are you blessed, but you can't help change and impact the world around you. You become salt and light. You become someone who makes a difference. You don't have to go and try to be salt. You don't have to try to be light. And if that's not happening, if you're not salt and light, it's not because you're not trying hard enough. It's because you're not getting out of the way enough and letting Jesus shine through you. You see, we've got the the most important lesson he wants out of this message. I gave you the illustration. I said it's the what. It's the Beatitudes. It's who we are in Christ Jesus. And then when we get down later on to... uh, to what I call the purpose statement, verse 17 through 20, he tells us the why it's so important. You see, why is the beatitude so important? Why is submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit so important? Because he says, now, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, you are called to a new standard. See, there are many people sadly misinformed in the church that think being a Christian is an ends to the mean. That once you accept Christ, once you walk down an aisle, once you pray some kind of prayer, that's it. Then you just ride it out till you get to heaven. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Matter of fact, 90% of the benefits of being a Christian don't happen after you die. They happen while we are on earth. Jesus spends very little time talking about heaven and a whole lot of time talking about heaven on earth as a Christian gives himself over to God. And what Jesus says here in verses 17 through 20 is he's trying to help us to understand that when we submit ourselves to God, he is calling us to a new lifestyle, to a holiness lifestyle. And he talks about the old standard. The Pharisees, they were so wrapped up into what you did. They had a list of rules and they added more rules. And they said, this is how you became spiritual. You followed this rule and followed this rule and followed this rule. And Jesus came and said, listen, you can follow all the rules in the world, but if your heart's not right, it's in vain. It's useless. 
See, Jesus says this new standard I'm holding you to, this new standard that the Beatitudes is calling you to, it looks at your heart. And Jesus says, I'm going to judge your attitude and your heart as much as I do your actions. Because you see, your attitude and your heart is where real change takes place. That's why we try to tell you in church, you can come and do all of those spiritual things, but they won't make a difference in your life if your heart hasn't been changed. And so Jesus says this new standard, this higher standard, examines our motives. It's concerned with why we do what we do. And then what he does for the next 26 verses in chapter 5 is he gives six illustrations of how that looks being lived out. He, he gives us some illustrations of, uh, of how it looks for a Christian who is submitting themselves to the Holy Spirit and walking in the character traits of the Beatitudes, how they encounter different things in their life. And some of the points that he brought out, some of the things he tried to tell us in verse 21 through 26, he told us that we've got to learn to control our emotions. Matter of fact, we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to control our emotions. We can't allow anger to get the best of us. We, we've got to be people that are in the business of reconciliation. Our job here on earth, when we look most like Christ, is when we are working to rebuild broken relationships. We've got to learn to lift people up. Then he goes on in verses 27 to 30, and he talks about being committed in your mind to allowing the Holy Spirit to control your thought life. See, he says it's not enough just to, to, to do something. When you think it, you're opening the door for those behaviors in the rest of your life. He said when you are a Christ follower, it's not enough just to, to, to not commit adultery. When you lust in your heart, when you have a desire for something that is not yours, you are sinning. That's the new standard. Because anything that you allow into your mind eventually is going to work its way out into your actions. Jesus says it's a new standard. Then he goes on to verse 31 and 32 and says, We are called to keep our vows, to keep our commandments. When we are following Jesus Christ, that means no matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult it gets, that we keep our vows to God. We keep our vows to our spouses. We keep our vows to our friends and to our neighbors. And then he goes on in verse 33 and 37 and says that we, our word needs to mean something. That when we say something, it has weight because we are people of integrity and people of character. And then the last part we looked at, verse 38 through 42, told us that we need to be people of the second mile. What does that mean, people of the second mile? It means that we need to go beyond what is expected. See, everyone else in the world does what is expected. And so many Christians have people ask me, you know, what is, what is expected of me? What, what can I do just enough of to, to be what God's calling me to be? He says, no, you're not called to do what is expected. You're called to go beyond what is expected. To go beyond what is expected and how we treat other people. To go beyond what is expected and how we show our love to others. See, the world can do what is expected. Without the help of the Holy Spirit, the world can follow a list of rules. You can follow a list of rules. But the only way to go beyond, to be people of the second mile, is to give your heart to the Holy Spirit. And then he comes to our last example, and it's in our passage today. And probably of all the other five, this is the hardest to live. Matter of fact, it is the most impossible to live without the help of the Holy Spirit. See, some of these others you might can try. You can try to control your mind. It's impossible. You can try to control your emotions without the help of the Holy Spirit, and you can work on it. But you cannot even try to do what he's calling us to in this passage. So look at verse 43, and I want to read. 
He starts out the same way he started all the other six by giving the old standard. Uh, You have heard it said, which is what the Pharisees, you have heard it said. He's quoting Leviticus 19.18. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even like the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? You see, if we are going to allow the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, if each one of these character traits are a part of us, then we are called to love our enemies and to pray for those who have hurt us. Now he tells us, listen, this is a higher standard. This is a different standard. He says, it's not enough just to love those that love you. It's not enough just to love those that like you. It's not enough just to love those that agree with you. The pagans can do that. And when he says pagan, he means those that don't have Christ can do that. You see, he says, what sets you apart as a follower of Jesus Christ is you pursue to love your enemy. When you are filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit, we are called to another standard. You say, well, why should I love my enemy? Because it exemplifies the love that God has for you and I. When we love somebody that doesn't like us, when we love somebody that hates us, when we love somebody that is called our enemy, we are more like the love that God has for us than any other time. The Bible says in Romans 5.10 that everyone in this room, each one of us was at one time an enemy of God. Do you understand that? When you were in sin, you were God's enemy. But that didn't stop him loving you. It didn't stop him pursuing you. It didn't stop him not only loving and pursuing you, but demonstrating his love for you by giving his only son to die for you. All the while, you hated him, you ran from him, and you were his enemy. See, you and I are called to that same standard to those around us. You and I are called to love everyone, especially those who we consider our enemy. Now, John tells us in 1 John that if we say we are a Christ follower and hate our brother, then we are a liar and the truth isn't in you. So what happens is it's a lot easier for you and I to say, I don't hate anybody. I hear people say that all the time, Pastor, I don't hate anybody. But Jesus is saying here it's not enough just to not hate somebody. It's not enough just to not hate them. We are supposed to love them. He's reminding us that when we don't love our enemy, when we we withhold love for someone that we don't like or someone that doesn't like us, we are becoming more like them than we are becoming like God. Do you understand that? That you are transforming into them. When When you hate, when you withhold love from somebody for whatever reason, you are becoming more like them. I had a pastor friend that's much more articulate than me say that when we withhold our love from someone, when we hate someone, it's like peeing in a wetsuit. It only affects you, really, right? Some of you will get that later. Some of you, you're you're like, I remember that, right? You see, by hating someone, by withholding your love, you're not hurting them. You're hurting yourself. You're keeping you from becoming more like Jesus. You're keeping yourself from becoming who God's called you to be. 
had a youth minister friend that was trying to teach his group of middle school students about why we are supposed to love others, and especially those that are enemy. And so one Sunday morning when they were coming into class, he'd set up the room and he had a target on the wall and he had all these papers laying around and he had darts laying next to the papers. And when the students came in, he said, listen, what I want you to do is we're going to draw pictures of people we don't like. We're going to draw pictures of people that make us mad, and then we're going to put it on the wall, and I'm going to let you throw darts at it. Well, you can imagine how that went over with the middle school group. They were all in. They began to draw. One girl drew a picture of another girl that had been against her and made her mad. Another guy drew a picture of one of the coaches that he didn't like, and somebody drew a picture of a teacher, and somebody drew a picture of their sibling, and somebody drew a picture of a neighbor. They were all getting into it. And they stuck the pictures up on this target and they each got a chance with the darts and they began to throw and he said as they threw, someone were throwing it so hard it was ripping the, the pieces of paper off the target. And they were laughing and they were cutting up and they were getting into it. And finally after everyone had a chance and the papers were torn and tattered, he went and pulled the darts off and he took the papers off and he moved the target and there behind the target was a hole-filled, torn picture of Jesus. And in the silence of the room, he read Matthew 25, 40. When you have done unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. You see, we forget that every person around us is made in the image of Christ. That person that gets on your nerves, that person that drives you crazy, that person you disagree, the image of Christ. And we are called to love them. Now, do you notice he didn't say that you're supposed to like them? Because like is an emotion. Love is a choice. And listen, there are a lot of people that I love that sometimes I don't like, but I still choose to love them. He didn't say, I'm telling you, you've got to be BFFs with your enemy. I'm telling you, you've got to go hang out with someone that doesn't like you. What he is saying is, you are called to love. Now, I know what's going through your head. Some of you this morning, you're thinking of the people that you would consider your enemy. People that maybe have done things against you. Somebody that's hurt you. Somebody that's gone around. And you're thinking, you're thinking, okay, Pastor. Maybe I could say, I, I love them. Wouldn't it be nice... If somewhere God gave us a description of the kind of love that we're supposed to have for those people, oh wait, he did. Maybe you remember 1 Corinthians 13. It's not just for weddings. He says, here's how I want you to love your enemies. With patience, with kindness. Not envious, not boasting, not proud, not rude, not self-serving, not easily angered, keeping no record of wrongs, not delighting in evil. You see, we're not just supposed to love our friends this way. We're supposed to love our enemies this way. And if that didn't hurt enough or if that didn't open it up, let me bring this a little closer to home. Right now in our country, politics has gotten awful personal and very hateful i don't think a, a day goes by that i don't hear somebody even christians saying things like i hate president obama i hate hillary clinton i hate donald trump when the reality is you are hating someone you don't even know 
You are casting hatred towards someone that is really, in your mind, a caricature of what has been created by a media or people around you and by sound bites. And we, we make up these caricatures of people that are real people. They have husbands and wives. They have children. They're sons and daughters. They have dreams and hopes, just like you. But it's so easy for us to say, I hate them, even when we don't know them. Do they really deserve our hatred? See, when did it become okay for Christians to spew hatred towards someone we disagree with? When did it become okay for Christians to to spew hatred and vitriol and anger towards someone who sees the world differently than we do? I can't find it. I've looked. And you see, it's not bad enough that we just, we just hate those people. Now we are spitting hatred towards people who voted for those people or who support those people or hatred towards people who don't hate those people as much as we hate them, right? If you can't say amen, say ouch, right? I read somewhere of a lot of people that weren't going to go home for Christmas or Thanksgiving because they had family members that voted for somebody differently than they voted for. Is that how far we've come? Christian people. Not going to go spend time with my loved ones because we disagree. When did we decide it was okay to only love and show love to the people we agree with? That's the direct opposite of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5. Just because I disagree with someone politically, I disagree with their choices, if I disagree with their lifestyle, that doesn't give me an excuse not to love them. Matter of fact, it's just the opposite. To those I disagree with, to those who I'm troubled by, to those who I hurt over their lifestyle choices, I am supposed to love them more. You see, listen to me, they're not your enemy. Matter of fact, Jesus said... In the parable of the Good Samaritan, they are your neighbor. Somehow, Christians have forgotten that the decisions that we make in here have much more of a lasting impact on your family and on your future and on your life than any decisions that will ever be made in Washington or ever made in Raleigh. And that co-worker, that, that neighbor, that family member, that, that person on the internet with all the crazy conspiracy theories that drives you crazy, we are commanded to love them. Church, I have an option. You want to know why it's such a mess today? Because we have joined in the choruses of hatred and the choruses of anger. Where is the reasonable voices that stand up and remain silent only to speak love and encouragement to others? Now I know that's hard. Listen, I'm, I'm political by nature. I love politics. I love history. I study politics. And there's so many times on the internet I so want to jump in. I so want to tell people how wrong they are, right? It's hard. But lucky for us, Jesus gives us some insight into how we can turn that anger or that hatred towards our enemies into love. And what did he say we're supposed to do? Pray for them. Sounds simple, but it's not. 
pray for them. Instead of lashing back out, instead of giving them a piece of your mind, instead of jumping on Facebook and writing a diatribe about why you're right and they're wrong and how they're idiots, why not put their name at the top of a list and every day pray for them by name? Now, don't pray that God will send fire down on their house or that, you know, they'll come around to your way of thinking and your wisdom. That's not what he means. Pray for that person that God will bless them. Pray for that person that God will touch them. Pray for that person that God will protect them. Pray for that person that God will show them that he loves them. Because, you see, what I've found is it's almost impossible for you to pour out your heart on a daily basis to God for someone else and continue to hate them. Because the more you pour out your heart to a loving God that loves me in spite, and I lift somebody else up, somebody I don't like, somebody that I disagree with, the more my heart begins to turn and change to where I love them. Now, as I said, it's... It's not easy, almost impossible. You've got to have the Holy Spirit's help. But it's what Jesus expects of you. It's what sets us apart. It's what makes us different. It's what makes us followers of Jesus Christ. Now, all that to get back to verse 48. I'm almost done. Hang in there. I want to wrap it all up. Back to that perfect idea. Now, I told you that verse 48 is a summary statement of the whole chapter. How do we know that? Because he says, therefore. Therefore probably goes before the be perfect. And what does the therefore mean? Because of everything I told you. Because you are called to a higher standard. Because you are filled with the Holy Spirit. God himself lives inside of you. Because you have the potential to do everything that Jesus asked of us in chapter 5. When you submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. Because of all of that, therefore... Be perfect. And the word he uses for perfect is the Greek word teleos. And it's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3 verse 12 when he says, Not that I have already obtained all of this or have been made teleos, perfect, but one thing I do, I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Perfect. It's the same Word in the Greek language that's used in the passage I read earlier to you from Hebrews. He didn't say perfect. He used a different translation. Here's where it's used in chapter, verse 14 of chapter 5, Hebrews I read earlier. But solid food is for the teleos, the perfect. In the NIV it says for the mature. Verse 6 of chapter Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1 of Hebrews says this, Move on from elementary teaching and go on into teleos, maturity. You see, the perfect that Jesus is talking about here in verse 48 is spiritual maturity. You know what Jesus is saying? Because of all of this, because of who you are, because of who you have, because what God is doing in your life, it's time for you to spiritually grow up. Stop making excuses. Stop comparing yourself to the person beside you or to your parents or to that person that's been in church forever. Start listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit and move beyond this comfort zone that you've got into. Matter of fact, listen to how the Message Bible translates this passage. Our passage, Matthew 5, 48. Listen to what he says. In a word, what I am saying to you is grow up. 
You are kingdom subjects now. Live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live graciously and generously towards one another the way God lives towards you. The greatest resolution, commitment that you can make that will change your life in 2017 is to commit yourself to spiritual growth, to spiritual maturity. And that doesn't mean make a list of all the things that we've been talking about. You see, because what happens if I was to ask you, what does a spiritually mature person look like? You know what you would come and say? Somebody that comes to church and somebody that reads their Bible and somebody that prays and somebody that serves on ministry teams, somebody that gives, and all of those things are good. But you know you can do all of those things and never grow. Sunday and never grow. You can read your Bible every day and never grow because you're missing something. What are you missing? It's the key to chapter 5, a change of heart. See, without the heart change, all of those other things are in vain. All of those other things are window dressing. All of those other things are just peripheral. You see, what Jesus is saying is it's time for you to open your heart and let the Holy Spirit have all of it. Time for you to submit yourself completely to Him. You see, what happens is we get lazy and we trade spiritual growth for legalism. Legalism is a sign of spiritual immaturity. What is legalism? Rules. Instead of saying, I'm going to trust and live in God's grace and and I'm just going to step out on faith, we say, tell me how I should do things. Tell me what I should do. And we say those things make us spiritual. They don't. When you are raising your kids, and some of you are still raising your kids, there will come a time where you have to take all of the rules that you've got and pull some of them back to help them develop faith and trust. That's called maturity. We have to do the same thing spiritually comes a time where you have to stop clinging to the rules and start clinging to what Jesus says about you and start trusting him and step out on faith. Commit yourself to go a little deeper. See, spiritual maturity is not a yearly resolution. It's an everyday resolution. It means waking up tomorrow morning and inviting the Holy Spirit to take control of every area of your life. You say, Holy Spirit, you have my thoughts. Holy Spirit, you have my mind. Holy Spirit, every word that comes out of my mouth, let it be yours. Holy Spirit, your attitude is my attitude. Make my actions your actions. And then it means waking up again on Tuesday and doing the same thing again. It starts with a heart committed to change. You see, the only thing that's going to change this year is not you reading your Bible more or coming to church more or or praying more or giving more. It's going to change when you commit your heart to being different by saying, God, have it all. Then you can have the other stuff. Once you say, God, take all of me, then dive into the Word of God and start reading it every day. But don't just read it because it's a a habit. Read it because it can come alive to you. Go and read things like the book of Proverbs. I've been reading the book of Proverbs for 25 years. Every year I read one proverb a day. There's 31 proverbs. So that means at the end of the year, I've read the book of Proverbs 12 times. And you can't help, even as ignorant and and hard-headed as I am, you can't help but when you read something 12 times in a year for some wisdom to seep in. Go to a book like the book of 1 John and commit to reading it every day. Read a chapter every day. You really want to dive in? Go to the book of Romans or the book of Hebrews. Stop just coming on Sunday morning and say, Pastor, feed me. It's time for you to dive in. 
Make daily prayer time a priority, not an afterthought. If you want to really change your heart and say, Holy Spirit, have all of me, then make your prayer time more than just a list of requests for things you need. Make it a time where you commune with God, a time where you listen as much as you talk. Make a commitment to be a part of the body of Christ. Commit to being at corporate worship. Now, you know I'm not a legalist. We don't take role. I'm not worried about you being here. But I can tell you this. A Christian cannot grow without being connected to a local body. Any more than your finger will grow if you cut it off and put it away and it's not connected to the body. It's not going to grow. What happens? It dies. We are called to come together and encourage one another and help one another and love one another and lift one another up. Commit to serve someone. See, what I'm saying is, and and I'm almost done, is this year, 2017, it's time to get out of the shallow end. It's time to get out of the kiddie pool. Some of you have been there for 30 and 40 and 50 years. This year, it's time for us to wade into deep water. Trust God. Step out on faith. Why? Because it's who you are. He just told us, in 48 verses, it's who you are. In the moment that you begin to seek to grow, you know what happens? You don't have to try to make the Beatitudes come out. They come out. You don't have to worry about putting God in control of your thoughts. All of a sudden, it just happens. All of a sudden, your emotions begin to get controlled. All of a sudden, you're willing to go the second mile. And most importantly, all of a sudden, it becomes easy to love those who hate you. A perfect resolution for a perfect year. Are you tired of spiritually not going anywhere year after year? It's not because God doesn't want you to. It's because you have chosen not to. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said this about spiritual maturity. We need to remember that the growth of a believer is not like a mushroom, but like an oak tree. It increases slowly, but surely. Many suns, many showers, and many frosts will pass upon it before it comes to perfection. It's that word again. For as in winter, when it seems to be dead, it is really just gathering its strength at the root. Be humble, loving, watchful, and diligent. And endeavor in your heart to look through it all and fix your eyes on Jesus. And growth will come. I wonder how many of us this morning are willing to make a commitment to perfection. Let's pray.